Welcome to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Each week, Ununinformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel dumb around your smart friends. We're talking about something called compassionate conservatism. To many people, they believe compassion and being a conservative is like oil and water. But Marco Diaz says no. Marco Diaz is heavily involved with the Utah Republican Party, and he's joining me here today in Salt Lake City. Marco Diaz, welcome to Ununinformed. Sean, thank you very much for having me. So Marco, uh, how have you been involved in the Republican Party here in Utah? Well, it started about 19 years ago that I decided that I needed to make some changes legislatively, and and the only way I found that I could was uh, getting involved politically. And I felt that the Republican Party aligned best with my values and principles. And and so in the party, I've been involved uh, from a, a state delegate, county delegate, state delegate, to being in the state central committee, executive committee. And, and three years ago, I ran to be the state party chair. I had served yeah. in many capacities and, and felt that we needed to be a bigger tent and a, and a broader, more welcoming party and decided to run to be the state party chair. Fortunately, I did not win, but it was a great experience and one that really helped me understand more about the delegates and where they were feeling. And, I, and I, that's a little bit how I developed where my political philosophy is at this point. Well, let's talk about that. So right. we, we, let's talk about this uh, thing I've heard you talk about, um, compassionate conservatism. So where where was the birth of compassionate conservatism for you? And well, well how do you even define it? Okay. Well, let's talk about those two things. So when I first heard the phrase, I was working for a congressman, Congressman Chris Cannon, okay. and uh, and I was at a, at a meeting at the White House, uh, oddly enough, about immigration. And when President Bush was speaking to the West Wing, uh, when he was rolling out his immigration plan, yeah. uh, he talked about compassionate conservatism. And really? and I didn't first time I had heard the phrase, I didn't quite understand it because, as you said, it's like water and oil for a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. and. And people, you know, I always say for many, it's an oxymoron, two words that really don't coexist. But as I have since then, and at that time, as I thought about it, I don't not only believe that they are not oxymorons, but they can complement one another. And yeah. and hopefully today during this podcast, we can expand as to how they complement yeah, one another. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled about this concept. Intrigued, right? A lot of people yeah. are like, okay, say more. But second... You know, and how do we define it? You know, people, yeah. not only do we, we do I believe it's government helping solve problems, um, especially for those most in need and w- without its involvement mainly. What I mean by that is helping find solutions that doesn't increase the size of government, that doesn't increase, that we could help people. Uh, and create that safety net without bigger bigger and broader government, number okay. one. And number two is helping people help themselves, which is the whole concept of teaching people not only to, to fish, but help them know where to go fish and yeah. helping them help themselves. So those two concepts, not growing the size of government and helping people help themselves is, in my definition, how we how and we'll, and we'll translate that into vivid examples how we can be compassionate to help those most in need and still apply conservative principles. Cool. Let's jump into some examples because how does this ideal turn into practice? Excellent. So um, a couple examples. So number one, education. I believe education is the number one um, way out of poverty. Now, I always start with the premise that the size of government, 
bigger, broader government has never taken anyone out of poverty. Just because government gives you more more um, social benefits doesn't yeah. get you out of poverty. It may help you sustain yourself, but you and your children will continue in poverty unless we help people. Education. Um, education, I'm the first one in my family to graduate from college. And I know yeah. the value and the, and the difference is made in my life. I came from a, a lower income. Uh, my father was an airman. started as an airman in the U.S. Air Force. They don't make a lot of money. Oh, really? And worked his way up to staff sergeant. Makes a little bit more, but still not a lot of money to serve, serve one's country. But because I've been able to get a degree and a master's, you know, a, a college degree and later a master's degree, it's made a difference. Now, yeah. how does conservatism apply, especially com- compassionate conservatism? Minorities in general, low, people of low income, whether they be white, brown, purple, yeah. they struggle with education. Dropout rates are very high. And, um, and so how do we help them without the traditional uh, well, maybe liberal the approach? Yeah, the liberal the, the approach, approach bigger, dumb, dumb more money, money into it. Right. And... So it's bigger government, right? We need more and more money. I don't believe that helps anything. Yeah. Because studies have shown that more money is not a correlator with greater results. Okay? Right. So that has been proven doesn't work, but again, every year they want more and more money. Now, yeah. how do we help these? How can we show compassion and still say it's not about money? I believe um, uh, programs that have been tried in, in school districts in Florida and Detroit and others called tuition tax credits okay, has that. proven tuition tax credits basically, or they call it they can call it backpack funding, tuition tax credits, scholarship funding, which means I, that money that we're using, a portion, not the totality, but a portion of that money that we use per pupil spending, we're going to give you in terms of a voucher. You as a, a child that comes from a, perhaps a rough neighborhood, from, yeah. comes from a low-income family, and instead of you going to the schools in your area, because most of the time, poor children live in poor neighborhoods that normally are in schools that are not doing very well. Yeah. So if they have that money and they can use that in Utah, we don't have a lot of parochial schools, but they can use it anywhere they want because the government is spending that much money, whether you go to the neighborhood school or anywhere else, they can take that money and go and shop around just like they would anywhere and say, hey, that school is really good. I have this money. I'm going to go to that school or I want to go to a private school. I'm going to use part of that money and maybe put a little bit more of my money and get that education I need. So, so the school becomes uh, school selection becomes kind of a marketplace. It's a marketplace, and yeah. it's a very conservative approach, a very market-driven approach, yeah. but one that competition made our country the greatest nation on earth. But yet we don't have competition in education. It is a monopoly, and yeah. we've seen that monopolies don't foment growth, don't foment prosperity. Yeah. Contrary, stagnation. If you're a monopoly, you don't have to improve because everybody has to buy your product regardless. Right. But if you have someone across the street selling your same product, you got to be better. Well, that's what tuition tax credit does. It says even if you come from a poor background, from a poor neighborhood, from a failing school, you can take your – that's why it's called backpack funding as well, backpack funding, because it's kind of – that money follows you wherever. Yeah. And you can take that money to find a school that is – succeeding in areas that your school may be failing. So that's example number one yeah. in education. Um, number two, let's talk about economics. A, okay. lot of, a lot of people say people that are poor make low wages, minimum wage. So Democrats would say or – Raise uh, the minimum wage. Raise the minimum wage, right? That's the solution, a liberal yeah. solution to that. And again, this is – and I want to be clear. 
I have many friends who are liberals and, and Democrats. I'm not trying to bash them. It's just an exchange <laughs> sure, of an idea. Yeah, and I'm this sure many of the listeners are liberals too. So I'm sure. There's something but, here So this for is you. an exchange of ideas. It's not about them, but just a different idea. Right. Most solutions, would, most liberals would say, raise a minimal wage or give us a, live, a, you know, a livable wage, not a minimal wage, right? But increasing the minimum wage, which is, you know, you hear constantly, please increase that amount, you know, that amount, 25 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour, a dollar an hour or whatever. Yeah. will do very little for that person in poverty. That 25 cents or 75 cents will not take them out of poverty. Contrary, it could cause them to lose their job because studies have shown by increasing, requiring increase in wages without increase in production causes employers to have to let go of some staff or use more technology in order to make up the difference. And therefore, instead of helping that person, that person may lose their job as a result of increasing the minimum wage. Yeah. Now, what is a conservative solution? What's a compassionate yet conservative solution? I would say, again, it goes back to education. That person, instead of making... 25 cents a dollar more or even or an hour more or even two dollars an hour more if he doesn't increase his skill set that will be short-lived because he will be let go if he can't produce at that greater amount yeah so if you help people pay if government again helps people pay uh for a trade school or helps them pay for um uh, there's been some uh, some states that where they pay for mothers to go and say, we will pay your daycare as long as you go to school because that's one okay. other thing. And now what, it's, what it does, it does a couple of things. Number one, instead of making a dollar more an hour, they're making eight, 10, $20 more an hour because they, they got a, either a trade, you know, trade degree or they got a, a college degree. So now they're making, now they can feed their own family. Now they're paying more taxes. They're paying back the government, the money, that the government, because if they were on on social programs, they wouldn't be paying any taxes. Yeah. The government would be out, out, out. This way, we're making an investment in a person, in a person's dignity. Saying we believe that you don't deserve just twenty five cents more an hour. You believe not just an, a dollar an hour. We believe that you have the capacity of making ten, twenty, thirty dollars more an hour, and we're going to invest in you. And guess what? It's going to come back to us in forms of greater taxes. So it, again, it not only washes out, but it creates. Uh, probably even a greater plus for the government. And you have people, again, fishing on their own. Now, help me out here. How does that money for something like this uh, system get from the government to the person? Okay. So it should never go to the person. It should go to whatever program they they choose. So there was a program uh, where President Clinton introduced a very – Oh. Conservative program. We'll, we'll uh, even bring up a Clinton yeah, on that yeah. conservative. Yeah, a very interview. conservative program, which is they call it not w- welfare but workfare, okay. where you apply. You could you can get you apply and say, hey, I want to study in this program. If you meet certain economic thresholds, if you're below the poverty level, eighty percent of poverty, whatever, I can apply to get a trade school. I want to become a beautician. Yeah, I want to learn that trade. I can apply and say the government will help you pay for this. And I always say, say help you pay for it. I believe whether it be $50 or $100, the person should make some sacrifice. Yeah. Because if you sacrifice, again, you feel ownership. It's not just a handout, but a hand up. Right. We are helping you up. We're not just giving you this handout. So if they contribute a little, the government contributes more. Together, they help this person 
learn a trade, learn a skill, learn, get an education, get a degree. Now they can contribute back to society, show dignity to their children. They're not just dependent on government. And then their children will follow their example because study after study have shown if you're a college dropout, your child is most likely to become a child. If you are learning, even if it's a trade school, the fact that you're learning, you're wanting to improve yourself, your child might be the first to go to college in your family because of your example. So so that's how we would do it in terms of uh, economic, you know, we're talking about uh, minimum wage things. The whole idea of government, not just in the 80s, 70s and 80s, there was this whole push for this the safety net of we can't we can't let people starve. We can't. So not only was food stamps introduced, yeah, but people would get paid welfare. Or uh, there came a point there were more people getting uh, creating an incentive to stay home because they made more money by staying home, yeah. and then uh, then because the welfare check was a greater amount, they didn't have to do anything, and that created. Social illnesses, right. uh, vices created a whole bunch of problems, unintended consequences because government was, was feeling that they should do it all. No, the responsibility, again, responsibility should be on the individual. Government yeah. should help the individual help themselves. That is, again, a conservative principle and one that shows compassion. It is compassionate to actively help citizens in need. It is conservative to insist on accountability and results. This is a quote from President Bush. It is our responsibility as a nation to help those in need. But it is also our responsibility as conservatives to hold them accountable for those results and hold them accountable for them to take responsibility for themselves. So going back to the fact that welfare was not promoting personal responsibility. Contrary, it was making them be more lazy, creating social illnesses and vices and stuff. But when we introduced this whole five-year, you know, two-year-at-a-time, five-year lifetime of welfare, people realize that if I don't do something to improve my skills... Life's going to suck again. <laughs> it's going to be bad. Yeah. And so it created an urgency. A, hey, I'm going to give you a fishing pole now. I'm going to teach you how to fish. But that fi- if, if you don't do anything, you're just not going to get that fish anymore. Yeah. So you're going to have to go learn how to fish yourself. That's another example. Number four, housing. Again, about the same time, what we, we ended up creating this housing for people that were poor. And they ended up being called the projects. Yeah. Okay? These were housing projects, and they were calling the projects. A great idea of helping people because housing is so important for you know, starting. If you don't have a, house, a roof over your head, it's hard to talk about education, talk about other aspects of growing as an individual if you don't have shelter. Right. However, this housing... Uh, was created by not by government just handing out here's a key to your house we're going to pay for it it didn't encourage people to take care of their houses they would treat it poorly graffiti all over drugs infested because it was a combination of getting a free check free housing why work ownership's huge ownership so a compassionate conservative would say we will give you help you for your down payment for a home we will help you for a little bit on your rent, but if you meet certain criteria. If you're going to school, we'll help you meet certain rental requirements. This is a solution that says, hey, we help you when you help yourself. There is nothing wrong with that. And contrary, homeownership, since we've done aware, away from the projects, yeah. homeownership has soared. Because what we're saying to you is, hey, we will provide you, help you cre- clean up your credit. We will help you lower the requirements so so that we create what is called you know like FHA type loans where hey 
Government will help and lower the bar to get into a home, but you have to do your part. And yeah. since then, it's been much better in terms of housing. The final thing I'll talk about is just a recent example about, again, government not doing everything. We've just been through two rough natural disasters here in the in, yeah. in, in, in Texas, Irma, and, Irma yeah. and Harvey, right? In Texas and, and Florida and, and the, up the East Coast. And one of the greatest examples I've seen is the fact that it's not government that showed up first. It's not FEMA. It's individuals. I'm LDS, so I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, Mormon LDS helping, volunteer, yeah, Mormon, Mormon helping, helping hands, hands were first on the scene for many of these folks. Yeah. Without compensation, without need for, um, you know, try to seek something for that. Government is not always a solution. I think government is best when they get out of the way. That yeah. doesn't mean we can't be compassionate. Yes, a lot of these Mormon helping hands and Catholic relief services and a lot of great organizations that are not government agencies, uh, nonprofit uh, profits work with government in partnerships. But looking, the, the poor example might be a um, whole Katrina issue where government tried yeah. to be in control and it just failed miserably. So I guess in each one of those examples I provided, we need to help people that are going through natural disasters. We need to help people that are poor. We need to help people that are struggling and trying to get just a leg up, but they feel like the system brings them down. Government should help them up. Hand up, not a handout. That's yeah. what I believe is the whole, in a nutshell, what a compassionate conservative is all about. Excellent. Now, I have a question about, yes. uh, here's another issue, immigration. Um, yes. that That's uh, a hot issue that's uh, sometimes, I, I feel like the conservative platform, uh, the rule of law becomes more important than helping a person. So how can we have compassion and, and still be conservative in that's that a, that's regard? That's a great question because, and, and I didn't bring that up, uh, maybe on purpose, because uh, uh, <laughs> compassion, you know, that that's a very controversial issue, but a very yeah. great example where we can apply conservative, compassionate conservatism. And again, go, I mentioned that that's the first time, the first place I heard the phrase compassionate conservatism when President Bush was standing at the East Wing rolling out his immigration plan, willing to just give away what, what, what ultra conservatives would say, that's amnesty, right. is giving something for nothing. Here you go, you broke the law, but we're going to turn the other, other way and, and we're just going to let you in this country. That is, I disagree with that. I don't believe that's compassion because again, people need to take accountability and responsibility. Yeah. These individuals broke the law upon coming here. But they are contributing to our economy. How do we make both of those work? Yeah. Okay. If you go to California right now, there are certain places where they're cracking down on immigration and all this fruit and all these vegetables and all these produce are just rotting. And even though they're trying to pay people 20 and $30 an hour, no one is willing to do it more than a back, uh, you know, backbreaking work for more than a week before they say, I give up no matter how good you pay me. So are they a necessity for our economy? Yes. So as a conservative, I need folks... We need folks from educated, non-educated workforce, right? Yeah. And we need these these populations, but they broke the law. How do we how do we reconcile the two? The way we reconcile the two, what President Bush was saying is, they broke the law, so therefore they need to pay a fine, just like if we were speeding, we yeah. broke the law. We need to pay the fine. They need to pay back taxes. They need to learn English. They 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 need to be if they want to be part of this country, they need to involve themselves. They need to learn civics. Yeah. 
They can't have criminal records because we don't want, in every element of society, there are good people and there are bad people. Even in the, among the immigrant community, there are some bad folks that do human trafficking that are drug dealers. We don't want them. They, right. Those folks should be kicked out. Yeah. They need to do a background check. But if it's this mom and pop folks that are just, for the last 10 years they've been here, 20 years they've been here, they've raised their families here, they've kept their nose to the grind, they've provided, for, you know, uh, worked hard in our economy. Can we help them regulate their status and adjust their status so they can say, and it may not, and, and I believe in this, I'm a very much proponent of this. They broke the law. They should never, in my opinion, and, and I have fellow conservatives disagree with me, they should become, they should never become U.S. citizens. They become residents and their children will sometimes, because they were born here, will become residents. But that, in my mind, is a compensation for having broken the law. Now, if you talk to many minorities and, and undocumented individuals, they're like, I just don't want to be in the shadows. The fact that I can't vote here, that, that may not be important, but treat me humanely. Treat me with kindness. Help pay me a fair wage. And by, re- by making them U.S. residents, it does all that. Is it compassionate? Yeah. Is it conservative because we hold people accountable? Absolutely. Again, the phrase from President Bush is, it is compassion to actively help citizens in need, whether they be in need of, in, in terms of a flood, whether it be economic need, whether it be in, individuals who are trying to come to this country. These are individuals of need. But the conservative side would insist that we hold them accountable and that we show results. And so bottom line, it is a, it is a balancing act. Can we help yeah. people? Absolutely. But we need to hold them accountable and we need to make sure that they are willing to help themselves. So that's how you can reconcile the immigration approach. There are people that will say it doesn't matter what you do. No matter how much you hold them accountable, it is still amnesty. Well, unfortunately, that it seems to me that's a lot of rhetoric. Yeah. If you can be objective, you can realize in almost any government problem, whether it be healthcare, whether it be immigration, whether it be education, you can find a way of helping individuals without growing the size of government, without relying only on government. Finding partnerships between the private sector and government is appropriate. Finding ways that the private sector can help people or having or pushing it down to local levels where... Um, like again, the exact example of education where government doesn't have to be the only monopoly on public education. It can put the responsibility on its citizens to, to choose for themselves. One size does not fit all, no matter how much government believes it does. So that's why I believe in the principle of compassionate conservatives. That's why, I, as I started, not only do I believe they don't, they're not oxymorons, but I believe they complement each other very well. As a, I'm LDS, and as a, as a Mormon, I, I believe that we need to love our brothers and sisters, that we need to help those in need, that we need to um, care for our brothers and sisters that are, are, are struggling. But at the same time, I believe that we are always expected to do our very best and to um, show that gratitude by working to you know learn how to fish. So that's compassionate conservatism. Well, is it is it just a nice ideal, or can this actually happen? Well, as I mentioned earlier, or just a minute ago, I'm I'm a Republican and I'm a Mormon, LDS, <laughs> right? And uh, and I, and the reason why I'm a Republican is because a lot of my values, principles from my faith, I believe translate well. Now, as I mentioned, you know, the last example I mentioned was immigration. Utah is a very conservative state, and one of the most Republican states in the nation. 
83% of our legislature is, 80, excuse me, 88% of our legislature wow. is uh, Republican. 83% of them are LDS. Okay. <laughs> so it is very much a Republican legislature and a Mormon legislature. Right. So people would say, you are a very conservative state. So things like immigration, you know, would be super, they would be super vigilant, super uh, hardcore on immigration, on enforcement, enforcement, enforcement. However, Utah um, finds itself in an interesting uh, position because even though it's one of the reddest states in the nation, in, in terms of immigration, it is one of the most compassionate states in the nation. Again, a principle where compassion and conservative individuals and principles can coexist. We've passed bills that allow individuals to get be able to get driver's licenses, individuals who are undocumented yeah. to get driver's license, individuals uh, who are undocumented to pay in-state tuition. If they've lived here more than three years and they've gone to Utah high schools and they graduated with your kids and my kids and... Um, because they're undocumented, they don't have they they're not obligated to pay out of state tuition, or or in some case, in some states they don't even allow them to go to school because they're undocumented. Not only can they go to school, but they pay in state tuition just like their cohorts they came out with at, uh, and so it allows them because out of state tuition many times is more than double, and they couldn't even afford that. And so we give them the opportunity again to help themselves by getting an education. We have educational treaties between Mexico and, and Utah. Oddly enough, and so really, yeah, these educational treaties helps us as they come to the, the, some of these kids to make sure that they they're not losing you know credits, they're not losing you know um, that they can incorporate directly into our our schools and such. And so, my point in being is, even though Utah is very conservative, even in an issue such as that, such controversial as immigration, we've been able to find a compassionate cons- uh, solution. That doesn't increase the size of government. And so again, that people would think that would come from a state that's very blue. Contrary, this is from one of the reddest states in the nation, yeah. as Utah. So, to conclude, is this just a thought, a really nice thought, or a philosophy that is not applicable? As I mentioned, I gave four or five examples of how it can be used, and a real life example of how it has been used here in the state of Utah one of the reddest states in the nation. So I believe as a, as, a, as a country, we are much better off when we have less government, but more accountability, and that we can use compassion, but also apply principles that doesn't grow government, and doesn't grow our national debt, and we're better off as a nation. Marco Diaz, thank you for talking about compassionate conservatism. Thank you for having me. So that's compassionate conservatism. That was a fun interview. I've been looking forward to that interview for quite a while. Not because I wanted to make my listeners more conservative. No, that's not what this show is about. That's what talk radio is for. (laughs) But I was so intrigued to meet someone who believes that compassion can be present in politics. Because let's be real, it's not hard to notice a shortage of compassion among both Democrats and Republicans. If I were to ever run for office, you know, say mayor of (laughs) Winnemucca, Nevada, um, I hope that compassion would be part of my platform. And I hope you would vote for me. 
And speaking of voting for me, if you like the podcast, leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And thanks for listening. For those of you who are regular fans of Ununinformed, you may have noticed that there wasn't a show last week. That's because my internet service at my house was down. And it sucked. Not just because I didn't have internet, but because my internet service provider had zero urgency in fixing the problem. And there's not much I can do about that. I can cancel internet service from this internet company that starts with a C. But my other option is another internet company that also starts with a C. (laughs) I think most people with broadband internet can relate to this. The reason I bring this up is because next month, I'll have on the show someone who offers a solution to this internet monopoly problem. His name is Jeff Christensen, and he shared the stage with me at TEDx Salt Lake City earlier this month. In the next few days, his TEDx video will be released, and also mine will. So give that a listen. Shameless plug. Jeff Christensen talks about how it's ironic that the internet is open to innovation and competition, but the gatekeepers of the internet, the internet service providers, are not open to innovation and are closed to competition. And he even offers a solution. That episode will probably be released the second Monday in October. So give that a listen. Also, let me tell you about next week's show. It will come out next Monday. I'm talking to Cheryl Newville about her experiences with racism. And we're going to have a candid conversation about the reality of racism and maybe even some of my own biases and some of the biases of people just like me. And we'll discuss exactly what we can do about it. I'm super excited for it. And a lot of the people I've talked to are looking forward to it too. Give it a listen. It might open your eyes just a little bit. Our theme music is provided by Dee Dee Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Un-Uninformed. Thanks, everybody.